You can't take your kids' adolescence personally. It is their job to become more separate. It is their job to notice our shortcomings. It is their job to push boundaries. Any kid who's not doing that, I worry about. Thank you for joining me for the second half of my conversation with Dr. Lisa Damore, clinical psychologist, New York Times bestselling author and columnist, and host of the Ask Lisa podcast. We'll pick up on our discussion about the important conversations that parents of adolescents need to be having with their children. To listen to the first half of our conversation where we covered the complicated nature of adolescent friendships and how to maintain trust through these important years, please look to the link in our show notes. Technology, of course, pervades every aspect of our lives and it is often an area of confusion and conflict for parents and their children. But given the ever-expanding role that devices play in our lives, especially for adolescents who see it very much as their connection to their world, their lifeline, perhaps, Dr Damore, do you have any guidance? What what would you consider to be, I guess, a reasonable amount of time for uh, parents to allow their daughters to be on social media specifically each day? Here's the thing that to me seems incredibly straightforward and obvious if we're going to talk about rules for technology. I'm amazed by how outlandish this rule often strikes parents as being. As relaxed as I am, and I'm relaxed about a lot of things, the rule that we've made in our house is that no technology ever goes in any bedroom ever. No phone, no computer. There's no TVs in bedrooms here in our house. That rule is pretty easy to enforce. And especially if you start it when your kid gets technology, phones get charged in the kitchen or the dining room or whatever, the things are separate from the bedroom. That one rule does a great deal of work in terms of limiting how much time kids are on technology because they're not on it all night, in terms of improving sleep, which we could spend, you know, insert here 90 minutes of me ranting about the critical importance of sleep. I'll just spare you. I think it also significantly helps with kids handling technology well, not doing dumb, impulsive things. If you want to see a kid do something really dumb and impulsive, one o'clock in the morning is a very good time for that. I am sure nude selfies have been taken in the living room, but I think very rarely <laughs> that's what it's again, right? I mean, I just, I think it's a setup. It's a setup to be behind a closed door at one o'clock in the morning with your phone or computer. I just feel like nothing, like what good is going to come of that? So the first rule I would make is just no, like absolutely not. And of course, then the parents can't have their technology in their bedrooms either. Like it's, it's just a general health rule. And then rather than thinking about how much time can kids have technology, I think the way to think about it is what are all of the things kids are supposed to be doing and filling their time with that? So they're supposed to be at school all day. And then when they're studying, they're supposed to be studying in a focused way. So they shouldn't be on social media while they are studying. They should be physically active. They can't be on social media while they're physically active. They should be helping around the house hard to be on social media when you're helping around the house. They may have jobs and then they need to be sleeping. Adolescents should be sleeping nine hours a night. Three adolescents should be sleeping 10 hours a night. Elementary school kids, 11 hours a night. So the way I would actually do it is I would get out like a 24 hour clock and block out time for all of those things. What's left can be used for leisure. And that leisure for a lot of kids will be social media. 
very practical and I can feel people writing that down. Creating such a simple guideline is something that I think parents are looking for without wanting to oversimplify things. But as you say, sometimes people do make things more complicated than they need to be and and you're describing systemically how a relatively simple rule can have such a profound impact and and help parents to make sense of it. When we're talking about use of social media and devices, we're we're also talking about privacy and you know what is off limits, what isn't and and of course parents often stumble upon something that they prefer not to have seen. Maybe they've seen a text on their daughter's phone, maybe they're shocked by something that they've seen. How do you have that conversation when you find find something perhaps shocking. So the first thing you want to do is if you're going to be looking at your kid's phone, you need to tell her you're going to be looking at her phone because the most just tortuous situations I have been involved in is when a parent comes to me and they're like, so this is what I saw on her phone. And then I say, well, did you say anything? No, she doesn't know I look at her phone. And so then the parent is in this like terrible situation of do I tell her and we have that huge fight and also cut off access to further information or do I not tell her but I'm tortured because I can't let her know what I know. So I mean, so what I would say is if you haven't set this up this way and you do intend to look at your kid's phone, you should say, I'm going to be checking your phone just to make sure what's there is appropriate. I have no problem with parents doing this because I think for some kids, knowing that the parent will do it will actually help improve their behavior online, that it puts in a bit of a speed bump. Now, I don't think at this point, honestly, that a parent can fully monitor a kid's social media. I think a parent could quit their job and stay up 24 hours a day and still fail to find every last corner of a kid's social media. I think the question I would have is, how much do you need to be monitoring based on what you know about your kid? So if you have a really impulsive girl who in real life is doing and saying things that she regrets a lot, she probably doesn't need a whole lot of social media platforms, and especially before 13 for sure. If you have a very steady, careful kid, and they they can be of all ages. I mean, there's 11 year olds who are basically like 40 year olds, you know, who you really like, you don't think is going to actually use things, doesn't do anything impulsively. I think you can actually have a looser line with it. I think there's just a big question about monitoring. Okay. But so say you've seen something that you, that makes you uncomfortable. Presuming you've said to your kid, I'm going to check, then you need to say, I saw this on your phone. Can you, can you explain this to me? And give the kid a chance to explain it. But the thing I want parents to be careful about is teenagers are naughty as part of healthy development. And they're often naughty in ways that are really inconsequential. And has Top Gun Maverick come back to you guys? Has it released in Australia? Yes, I've seen it. (laughs) So my husband and I went to see it and then my 18 year old daughter had gone separately. But so then we made her watch the original Top Gun with us, my, my 18 year old, which came out when I was like 14 or 15 years old. So I was reminded when I saw it that my best friend and I, Nancy, spent a year after that movie came out greeting each other and I think others with goose you big stud, take me to bed or lose me forever, right? Like this totally inappropriate line from Meg Ryan. We were not having sex. We could not even get boys to kiss us. But like this was this running joke that we thought was so funny. If my parent had seen that in a text, they may have really reacted badly, but it was like dumb and nothing. And so I think you just don't know what you're looking at. You need to have open lines of communication to ask. 
And central to all of that, of course, is the issue of trust, isn't it? The things that you're talking about there, Dr Nabora, about keeping, keeping that delicate balance, trusting your children, but also making sure you're still their parent, particularly when you're talking about content and behaviour. What's your thought about that, that relationship of trust and the importance of that? And, you know, obviously that would be fundamental to any conversation that you're having with your daughter. Okay, so trust is getting built from the minute you meet your baby. You know, the trust is, is a, it's a feeling that's held in the family, right? Of, of, you know, I fundamentally think that you're going to be honest with me and, and that I, I can feel safe telling you about errors I've made or, you know, I mean, I think that trust is one of those things that's all around us all the time. What you're talking about a little bit is like discipline, like kids misbehaving and how do we keep them from misbehaving and how do we maintain trust with them, you know, hopefully by them not behaving badly. I don't think we talk nearly enough about the most powerful lever we have as disciplinarians, as parents, is actually that our kids enjoy our company. Because, and I remember, like, Neil Coulter was my supervisor when I was in grad school, this old, like, really actually cranky psychologist. I remember him saying, your good relationship with your kid is money in the bank, and you write your disciplinary checks against that account. I'll give you an example of how this played out in family life here. So when my older daughter was in ninth grade, she texted me from school saying, I finished my finals early. Are you around? And it was noon on a Friday. And I had this whole plan for how I was going to spend my Friday afternoon getting all sorts of work done. And I said, yeah, I'm around. Do you want me to pick you up and we'll go celebrate? So I swung by this high school and I took her out for the kind of coffee drink ninth graders like, you know, mostly a dessert. And we sat there and had a really nice time celebrating that she just finished her finals. And I will tell you, in all honesty, I really wanted to be at work. Like I, I really had a whole bunch of work I meant to do, but I also was having a nice time with her. But I was sitting there thinking, this is how I keep you through, from throwing parties when we're not home, is when we're getting along and when you're doing the right thing, it is fun to be in our family. We enjoy one another's company. We're fun to be around. You don't want to risk this. <laughs> and so, so I think part of how we build trust with our kids is that we make it so that when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, there's a lot of pleasure and gratification in the relationship, which would make them think twice before risking that. Beautifully put, because parents often doubt their you know, desirability as a social companion, as you've said. It's really important that we, we spend time with them. But the issue of trust, I think, there that we've been talking about also links into another concern. So we talked about what happens when you find something shocking or worrying on your daughter's phone about herself, perhaps. But we do sometimes, some parents will stumble across something about someone else's daughter. And, you know, you've certainly stressed the importance of safety. And, and I guess that's a collective enterprise amongst a community of people. But when should you tell perhaps a fellow parent about some information that you've learned about their child. Is there ever a time where you almost have to break the trust of your own daughter in doing it in some ways, or they may be very eager that you not speak to another parent? What's your guidance around those sorts of tricky situations? This is hugely common, right? Either Sometimes people will find it, but it's very common actually for just girls to bring the information home. You know, Molly's cutting, right? And, and so then the parent's like, well, now what am I supposed to do with that information? And it's very tempting as a parent to pick up the phone and call Molly's house and you know, so, and that may be the right thing to do, but I don't think it's the first answer. I think there's a few ways to slice this. First of all, every parent is most responsible for their working relationship with their child. So if a parent hears about a kid that your daughter met twice, three years ago, doing something that is worrisome, I don't think parents need to feel responsible for every kid in the entire community. 
when there's worrisome stuff and you're like, I'm not sure this is ours, but I feel like someone should know. It's often a very nice gesture to call the school and say, I don't want to tell you how I came across this information, but I do have this information on this kid. And the school often can figure it out or can put it together with other information. And I will tell you, I consulted a school and sometimes students at that school will bring me information about a kid at another school. And I will call the school counselor and I'll say, you need to have this kid on your radar. And so it's, it doesn't have to be the parent all the time. It may though often happen and it's most likely to happen that it's about a kid's own friend. At which point, I think the first thing the parent should do is to say, you did the right thing to tell me, or I am so glad I know, because this is above anything that you as adolescents should have to be dealing with, and you're not responsible for this, and you can't fix this. We need to get help from people who can really help. Her parents are the only people who can get her the help she needs. How are we going to get that information to her parents? And then you sit with your child and say, do you want to tell Molly that she needs to tell her parents and have them confirm to you that she did? Do you want to tell Molly that if she can't tell her parents, you're going to tell her parents? Do you want me to call Molly's parents? Do you want me to call the school and ask the school to call her parents? But there's lots of ways to get this information to the adults. And if you partner with your kid about it, you can really build your relationship because you're helping the daughter your own daughter wants help for her friend it takes a few more steps but it's worth it and of course the exception here is any question around suicidality or immediate safety you know i think that then all bets are off and you say to your kid either you're calling molly's house or i'm calling molly's house but that house is getting called because she's not safe but if there's a little room to work i would strategize with your daughter about how the information is going to get to the parent in a way that doesn't blow up your daughter's friendship with molly and, you know, a lot of these things, as we know, we discover through technology, as, as we've been talking a little about, or maybe someone's posted something that's often, you know, a cry for help or a, something that's detected and it's hard to know. But that conversation, as you say, in partnership with your daughter is something that you're strongly advocating in all of your practice and all of your writing. Going back to, to technology and this concept of sexting, which is, of course, so commonplace, I don't think it needs definition in this day and age. But how do you talk about those incidents? Perhaps, you know, your daughter's been involved or others are doing it. Any thoughts about how you have that conversation uh, with your daughter? Let me just start by saying I have this huge problem with how we talk about sexting in general, which is to basically tell girls not to do it. I think we are much less likely to say to boys, don't you ever ask for a photo. Don't you ever, ever, ever ask for a nude photo. And when I see school disciplinary policies, there's often policies about creating and sharing content that is considered inappropriate and no policies about requesting content that is inappropriate. And I think the first thing we have to realize, and we know this from the research, is not always, but an overwhelming amount of time when girls are sending texts, it's because they have been asked and often because they've been harassed or asked repeatedly. So I will say, I think we've really fallen down on the job by intervening as adults at the point of saying, well, just don't do it. That's the, like the least of the issue at this point. The big issue is your kid's being harassed and there's no real system to try to acknowledge or manage that. So the first thing I would do if I were the queen of the universe is I would have a rule at every school, which is you are not to request inappropriate photos, nor are you to send them. And I would have, especially co-ed and boys schools, make it very clear that this is the rule because more than boys request far more than girls do. And they have more social power and they harass more. If we could do this, and there's no reason we can't do this, like this should be completely, like it should just be boilerplate. 
what it opens up as a possibility is that when a girl gets a request, she could say to the boy, if you do it again, I'm going to tell an adult. Or she could just take it to an adult and say, look what I just got. And there would be a whole mechanism in place to help her. And I think that the piece that really gets lost left out of the conversation is by the time a girl is sent a sext, usually she's trying to really solve a problem, which is this guy's giving me an incredibly hard time. And he's saying he's going to tell people things about me if I don't do this. And so we're not really um, engaging with this, I think, in the ways that we truly help girls. So until we do that, truly, I don't think we're in much of a position to say don't do this. And what about for parents if their own daughter's done something inappropriate? We're always looking at consequences that are commensurate with what's happened and appropriate, doesn't break down that relationship of trust. What about taking away or limiting access to devices? How do you feel about that as a consequence or is that just too impractical today? I think it depends on the age. I think it depends on the offence. So say your own daughter is requesting nudes, right? I mean, say that like she's the one doing the requesting and you've said like this is completely... I think that there's room, you know, to say, you've got this tool, you're using it inappropriately, we're taking the tool away, we're taking it away for a little while, right? Or we're, we're going to very closely monitor how you use it. I think that that's probably a more effective with younger teenagers, you know, that where they're still trying to get used to having a phone or still getting good at having a phone. It's amazing how attached older teenagers are to their devices and how basically it's like you starve them of oxygen if they can't have their device. So I, I would... I'm not saying that means that they get unfettered use. I just think we have to, I wouldn't say it's a blanket response. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, take away a kid's phone. Like it just, yeah. that does not usually go very well. So if you were to, one of the things that you might find is your daughter being mean to you. And if, if we go onto that topic, most parents will have experienced at least once they've wondered, why is our child being so mean to us? We don't recognise her. And that's a topic I know that you have explored recently in your Ask Lisa podcast, Dr. Damore. So you explored, you know, why are teens sometimes mean, rude, or, you know, lash out? They seem unrecognisable from those beautiful little cherubs that um, we brought into the world. You talked, though, in that podcast about the notion that, you know, sometimes what our daughters are actually doing is trying to communicate with us how they're feeling by making Mm -hmm. us have that feeling. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, why daughters do that to us sometimes? In psychology, we we call this this idea of externalizing, communicating a feeling by inspiring it in somebody else. So I'll tell you a very recognizable example, and then we can look at it in the context of meanness. So we've all had that experience as a parent where your daughter brings home something like, oh, I've got this problem. And she tells you the problem and you're like, oh, well, here's a great idea. And she's like, no, 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 that won't work. And you're like, oh, okay, well, here's another great idea. And she's like, oh, no, you don't get it. That's not going to work either. And then you're like, what about this fantastic idea? And she's like, oh, my gosh, you're not even helping at all. And the parent like feels terrible. And usually the dynamic at work in that is that the girl feels really, really helpless. Like whatever the problem is, she just feels helpless. And what she's doing is she's communicating that to the parent by making the parent feel incredibly helpless, right? So it's not conscious. She's not doing this. She's not like, this is how I'm going to tell them my feeling. They just, they just share it by inspiring it. So that happens and it happens all through development. So sometimes when kids are being mean at home and making the parent feel hurt or upset or small, what may be at work is that your child's on the receiving end of something like that at school, you know, where someone there is being mean to them and being hurtful and making them feel upset or small. And rather than coming home and saying, 
I need to tell you I'm being treated by this particular person and it feels really bad. They say, oh my God, you're so dumb, you know, to the parent or, oh, you, you know, like you don't even get it. Like they're just nasty. And so I think we just want to, among the explanations for why kids can sometimes be really mean is that they may be showing us something. And so, you know, it takes a lot of wherewithal as a parent, but to say like, where is that coming from? Like, we don't talk to each other in this home or like that way. Is, is anybody talking to you like that? You know, I mean, I think we can start to ask down those lines, but the key in this is to be able to say, we don't talk to each other that way. Because if you do talk to each other that way, then your child may be sharing what they picked up at home. So let's move finally to to the home and the family unit because, of course, while we talk about adolescence as sometimes being challenging, one of the wonderful things about how you write, how you communicate, how you speak about parenting is it's also, of course, a time of great joy and wonderful connectedness. And and adolescence, as, as you've often pointed out, is possibly the last time that all of the immediate family members are there together. They're under the same roof, part of the same team or part of the same tribe. So what advice would you have for our parents about navigating these years with their daughters? You know, how do you think about it? How do you frame it, I think, is really important in your work and your writing, how, how we think about these things. Are there particular tools or advice that you'd have for parents of teen girls, not just to survive those important years, but to to come out the other end of it feeling that we're all part of a family, we're still part of the same team or tribe. What we have to remember is it's very stressful to be a teenager. And the reason it's very stressful to be a teenager is because you're changing so fast. If you line up a 12-year-old girl and an 18-year-old girl, I have an 11-year-old and an 18-year-old in my house. They're not even from the same species. I mean, they are completely different creatures. That is a huge amount of change in a very compressed period of time. Right, so I'm 51. Me seven years ago is basically me now. I haven't changed that much. And the rule in psychology is that change equals stress. So to go through that much transformation in such a short period of time is inherently stressful for teenagers. And in my book, Untangled, I walk through like these seven transitions that they have to make to get from being a child to being an adult. And these are major transitions. So to the degree that it's very stressful to raise a teenager, we're much better off not as adolescence is something she's doing to me. Adolescence is something she's going through and I occasionally get pulled in really weird ways that I don't entirely understand and that don't feel that great. You can't take your kid's adolescence personally. It is their job to become more separate. It is their job to notice our shortcomings. It is their job to push boundaries. Like any kid who's not doing that, I worry about. And so the Overall goal really is to not take your teenager personally and not take adolescence personally. And when you can do that, and it's not always easy, and I don't always do it. Like I can, my feelings can get hurt when my you know, kids are critical of me. But if we can do it, we usually have a lot more fun with them. And I think that's the other thing, like teenagers are fun. I mean, they are insightful and inventive and clear eyed in ways that I think are pretty unique across the lifespan. And they can tell who enjoys them. Teenagers can smell, I think, at about a thousand yards who likes them and who doesn't. And so if you can find a way to like teenagers, it's going to go great because they, they can tell. And if you don't like teenagers, that's OK, but you might want to look into why. Dr. Damore, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. And as always, your candour, your insights and your warm, unruffled approach is something that I know our parents will enjoy listening to in our podcast of Illumin. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. Oh, thank you for having me.
You have been listening to Illumin, a podcast by Brisbane Girls Grammar School. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And to learn more about the school, visit the website at www.bggs.qld.edu.au.